0: Hey, hope you don't mind my dropping over like this, normally I'd call you up and make sure you're free, but I really wanted to be sure that you could meet today's guest. Why? Well I'd like to assume you're taking this pandemic seriously, but if you're not, she just might save your life. And no, I'm not kidding. On today's inside stories, I'm joined by Lori Garrett, a Pulitzer prize winner, author, pandemic specialist, and truly one of the world's most influential and authoritative writers on global infectious diseases. She joins me from New York city. Welcome Lori. Hi. As we began July, global infections were topping 10 million. What do you think of that number?
1: Well, it's a horrible number, but of course it's a gross undercount, um, quite surely it's uh, a minimum of tenfold greater in terms of true infection numbers globally. So we're probably well over 100 million. The Centers for Disease Control has done a series of antibody test surveys of um, uh, blood test donations that were submitted not for COVID testing, but just general medical issues and they've found that some of them are testing 24 times the rate of officially reported cases in some states. So in other words, there's a huge burden of infection here in the United States and all over the world that is simply not measured. So that's the first thing that the 10 million number means to me. It's a milestone, but it's a milestone of Never neverland. The reality milestone is something far, far worse. The second thing is, it, it tells us that uh, this virus is far more pernicious, uh, far uh, more contagious, and in more ways contagious than we initially thought, and that any of our initial measures would have controlled. I, you know, most of us just didn't, I, I don't include myself, but most most people really didn't pay close attention to Wuhan in December and January and didn't really see day by day the measures the Chinese took abandon try plan b abandon truck plan you know try plan c etc to really appreciate how rapidly that virus was spreading and where it was spreading in Wuhan if we had all been paying attention we would have been Uh, forewarned, forearmed, and certainly would not have thought that the kinds of weak namby-pamby measures that were being taken in March, April, even into May, would have had any real impact. It wasn't until a city like where I am right now, New York, really fully clamped down, really said to the population it is not safe to go outside and do not go outside unless you are an essential worker and so classified. Until that moment, we didn't have any possibility of bringing the virus to its heels.
0: Now, I'm not a scientist. I don't work in government or healthcare, but I was completely absorbed by this story from mid-January on and looking at anything I could find. So given that this information was out there where even someone like myself could access this, how did we mess up so so badly?
1: You know, every single epidemic has a moment when the tension gets very acute between the economic costs and the public health costs. And public health is always the weak sister to Wall Street, to big industry, to whatever the major employer is in town. It is always the case. Heinrich Ibsen famously wrote his play in Norway back in the mid-1800s called enemy of the people, and the enemy was the public health person saying that factory upstream is polluting and killing us downstream. Uh, If you take that factory upstream and think of it as the entire global economy, think of it as the whole engine of generation of wealth, uh, that has been pitted against, repeatedly over and over again, public health measures. Um, and, you know, the price that's being paid now in the deep south states, Texas, uh, Arizona, all the way to Florida, uh, is really a price paid by the economic forces having won in those states, having pressured for reopening, having pressured to get all the businesses back up and running, and now this huge surge of cases of the virus that has uh, followed from that decision. and. You know, this is not a uniquely American problem. Every country in the world has faced this. Sweden is still bragging that they'd made the right choice. They have the highest per capita death rate on the European continent. They have, uh, you know, a huge, huge catastrophic problem, particularly in their nursing homes and their elder population, but they never fully shut down. And they said, look, our GDP has suffered less than any other European country, so we did the right thing. If you measure by GDP, gross domestic product, you know, then you're gonna make one set of choices. Well, here in the United States, we've made no real choices, it's been utter chaos. Some states have done better than others, but we've pitted the states against each other. There's no federal serious leadership or guidance. Um, And, you know, we've allowed a lot of the economy to either never have closed down or to reopen. Uh, Wall Street is, you know, hyperventilating uh, and often hitting records day in and day out throughout this crisis. Uh, and when you look at it all and put it all together, you can see that, well, that hasn't worked because according to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the United States will, by the end of this year, have experienced negative 8% GDP growth, negative 8 And I went through the records for the last 200 years in the United States we've only five times come close to a a negative eight. Uh, We were at negative 11 in 1946, uh, and during the Great Depression, we got down to negative 10, negative eight here and there. That's it. I mean, the rest of American history, uh, we're in positive GDP territory. And I don't think uh, most Americans really have any idea what a negative 8% GDP is gonna feel like because, we still have these PPP programs that Congress passed that are helping to subsidize unemployment, uh, some business subsidies to keep some small businesses running. All of that runs out at the end of this of July. Uh, we have about 31 days of such subsidies remaining. And then the pain will be felt. And you will see food lines that will make uh, food lines so far look puny. You will see uh, massive unemployment lines and you'll start to see a homeless crisis across America as people get kicked out of their homes for failure to pay rent.
0: Do you think we're heading toward potentially widespread civil unrest?
1: We've already got widespread civil unrest. It just will get worse. Um, And of course, since it's America, um, our civil unrest always follows racial lines. Uh, But other countries have their own, you know, fault lines. It may be religious, it may be class. uh, But in this country, um, ever since the dawn of our slavery era, we follow racial lines when we go into unrest.
0: When you're talking about the economic imperative and how that seems to have kind of held sway so far, how much of it is up to the individual to simply read the available information that's out there and take the appropriate precautions.
1: Well, right now, (laughs) frankly, and I never thought I would hear myself say this about any epidemic, any public health catastrophe, but at this point, you're on your own, ladies and gentlemen. And you better take things seriously because government is screwing up. And depending on what state you live in and what city you you live in, government is screwing up more or less government is more or less trustworthy. But overall, uh, you would be wise to take your own precautions, protect your own family, protect your own household, your own employees, your own school. Really take this seriously because uh, if you're waiting for government to wave a magic wand or to show up with a miracle vaccine, uh, you're gonna be waiting a long time. And um, just look at how many states have been offering totally contrary advice completely the wrong advice to their populations. Hit the bars, have a good time, whoopee. Uh Uh-oh, 76 of you just came down with COVID. Uh, That just happened in East Lansing, Michigan from one bar. And I think what has to happen right now is er every single citizen has got to say to themselves, ask themselves two questions. One, what can I do to protect myself and my closest loved ones? And two, what can I do to protect my community and my, what is my moral and ethical responsibility to my community. Screw what government says. Your moral and ethical responsibility has to take charge. And that means you wear a mask anytime you're around anyone other than your immediate family or your immediate household. You step out for you know, a quart of milk, you're wearing a mask. And you don't wear a mask so it's hanging off your ear or it doesn't cover your nose, or it's underneath your beard, or some other stupid way. That's just a fashion statement. You wear a mask appropriately, and any idiot knows what that is by now. So if you if you feel that somehow uh, you have some political right to refuse to wear a mask, and you have some uh, you know higher moral calling, or God will protect you, or whatever. Uh, then I, I really think you are saying to your community and the people around you that you don't give a damn what happens to them. And you don't have a, a Christian spirit. You don't have a spirit of, of you know, love thy neighbor. You don't have a spirit of concern and caring for those of another generation. Uh, and you're basically a jerk.
0: Did you ever think you'd see this kind of reaction where people are arguing it, that it's their political right to not wear a mask in in the midst of a pandemic?
1: Well, actually, I have seen this sort of thing before, uh, but not in the United States. I've been in Ebola epidemics where many people would say there is no such thing as Ebola or there's no such thing as a virus, or this was all created by Europeans. They've come in to infect us and take our body parts and sell them uh, in organ banks in Europe. Uh, or this is the, the government using this fake epidemic to suppress us because we're in this minority tribal group, or we have a lot of resistance soldiers around us. I mean, I've been in many, I've, I was in a massive diphtheria epidemic, more than a quarter of a million cases in the former Soviet Union in the mid-90s. And Uh, many people were running around saying there's no such thing as diphtheria, there's no such, the government can't force me to vaccinate my children, and then those kids died. Um, No, I have seen this before, but the idea that the mask itself is somehow a symbol of whether or not you are red state or blue state, whether or not you're a Republican or a Democrat, that is brand new and truly crazy.
0: I'm guessing you would not be surprised if we saw another outbreak down the road with a a different virus.
1: Not only would I not not be surprised, I would say it's inevitable. It's an absolute. It's a given. And uh, it may very well be much worse than this, much more contagious, much more lethal than this particular coronavirus.
0: I was actually going to ask you that, uh, the fact that we are enduring this, and it seems really quite terrible, but on the other hand, the fatality rate is relatively low, but this could, in fact, in the future, something like this could be much, much worse.
1: Well, before COVID-19 came along, we were always thinking about influenza and the potential for a 1918 reprise. 1918 flu killed 2% of the people it infected. In some parts of the world, where they took, for one reason or another, whether they realized it or not, better measures, uh, the mortality rate was down around 1%, and in some places it was as high as five. Um, And that was, of course, in the pre-commercial air travel era, so the spread to probably around 75 to 100 million humans on Earth um, took 18 months and uh, involve three cycles of the virus. Since then, we've seen some strains of influenza emerge and affect humans that are far more lethal. H5N1, H7N9, we're talking about 60 to 70% mortality rates. I mean, it's almost in Ebola territory in terms of mortality, but fortunately, none of these has uh, easily spread from human to human. You know, I said earlier we could be at around 100 million people infected by now uh, worldwide with COVID-19. And it's about a 1% or just under 1% mortality rate. If that were 5%, think consider how high our death toll would already be.
0: On the on the personal side, you obviously would have seen this coming. I'm curious what you were telling friends and loved ones in the in the weeks leading up before it became truly on the public radar in the U.S.
1: Well, for me, uh, late December and January were a time of really frenetic energy. I saw this developing. I felt like we were on the cusp of a catastrophic outbreak, and that. Um, You know, we needed to get the world moving. Uh, We needed a much more aggressive response from all nations, and especially from WHO, China, and the United States. And I was outraged, livid, that it was not forthcoming. Uh, I was telling people to start acting as if it already was among them, uh, which meant hand washing and masks and uh, social distancing, Uh, and then, By late February, I was warning everybody that I knew that I was close with, um, you gotta decide where you wanna hunker down because the word will come down that you must hunker. And you have to decide with whom do you wanna spend many weeks of your life, under what circumstances. And you need to consider how you will do your work, your job. You need to speak with your employer. You have to figure out what you're gonna do with your kids. and you don't have time. This is now, this is immediate. And I I was getting very frustrated that people I knew who had elderly relatives in nursing homes or at home, but getting assisted, uh, visiting nursing care and so on, were not thinking seriously about what will happen to these people and how will that care persist. I live in a large um, co-op apartment building And uh, I issued warnings to our board and said we have to limit to three people in an elevator at a time. We have to start uh, sanitizing all the common banisters and doorknobs and push buttons on the elevators. Uh, The staff have to start wearing masks. We can't let people in the building that aren't wearing masks. We have to no more deliveries to people's apartments of anything We have to set up uh, barriers, physical barriers, to protect our staff from strangers coming into the building and so on. And I'm happy to say that management took me seriously and instituted all of those policies so that though we have about 500 people in the building, we've only had one person succumb to COVID. And uh, we have had, and this is in New York City where we've had a huge epidemic, uh, we have had. Uh, at least three other elderly individuals succumb because they couldn't get health care for other problems amid the peak of our epidemic when every single hospital we've been in the city was a COVID patient.
0: What was that like being in New York when the epidemic there was, was at its peak, to be sitting there inside kind of a bubble, but being totally aware of what's going on in the healthcare facilities around you?
1: My uh, my home is located right between, um, over on this, in this direction, was where all the ambulance crews, the EMT crews from around the world that came to help New York were positioned. That was their staging area. And over in this direction was the central hospital that was taking in the lion's share of cases from my part of New York City. Um, and from about the last week of march to late april uh the wailing sirens of those ambulances were nonstop, 24 7. and sometimes i would hold my phone out in the in the out one of the windows and just record and you would hear 16 17 sirens at once uh, and you knew because we we have different sounds on our police sirens our fire and our ambulance. You knew these were all ambulances, and they were all heading to this COVID central hospital. Uh, There was a point when um, it was really, truly frightening. You felt felt the hand of death around the city clutching New York by the throat. Uh, And of course, every single friend of mine that's in the healthcare industry was overwhelmed. Uh, And many were, uh, I don't know how they were even getting up in the morning because they really had almost no sleep for days on end and uh, were themselves experiencing so much uh, nightmare and death that even if they did get a moment to lay down, they had no restful sleep. So this was our our horror. And now what's happening in New York is uh, young adults that have been locked down with roommates they don't get along with, or soulmates that are no longer soulmates, or or potential spouses that now they realize, no, we shouldn't get married, whatever, are just really eager to get out, get back dating. Get You can feel the sort of sexual energy of the city rising. Um, they've been pent up all these months, and they are just desperate to get out. And every day you have this when it's a nice day, it's beautiful outside as it is now, you have um, a surge of people who want to go to the park and meet new people, want to go to a bar, what have you. And then some something exceeds safe levels, and the community itself starts shouting at them, stop that, put a mask on, you can't do that anymore. I think that uh, New Yorkers are looking at Florida and Texas and Arizona the sorts of images of uh, you know thousands of people uh, on rafts in Lake Havasu together uh, and saying, these people are insane. How are we gonna get through this? Because they're gonna all wanna come to New York at some point and reinfect us, reinfect the city. Uh, and I, I, I heard a lot of cheering when our governor announced that the tri-state governors had decided to start excluding people and demanding they go into quarantine if they're coming from Florida, Texas, Arizona, and so on. I don't know that there's any way to enforce that in reality, but it sent a message. And the message is, we've paid our price, and we don't want to have to pay it again.
0: You are such a deep subject matter expert, and you were talking earlier about scenarios that we're heading toward. How do you shut this off and give your mind a break from time to time in the midst of this?
1: it's almost impossible I, I wake up in the morning and realize that all of my dreams were scenarios rolling through my head what about this, what about that or conversations I, needed, I felt I needed to have with this person or that person um, you know, like everybody else I have a Netflix account and sometimes you turn off the switch by watching something really stupid
0: All right, we're going to wrap things up and we do so on this program with that sound, which indicates I'm going to ask you a few quick questions and looking for a few quick answers. If you had not become an expert in this field, what would your second choice have been?
1: Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I was trained as an immunologist.
0: On a scale of one, with one being okay and zero being terrible, how was this interview?
1: Uh, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> What's your favorite country outside of the US?
1: Oh, goodness. I love so many places.
0: Oh. Top couple.
1: Well, I love Japan. I love Italy. I love Spain. I love, I used to love Zimbabwe until Mugabe destroyed the place, parts of South Africa. Um, you know, Canada ain't half bad.
0: Canada, polite or impolite? <laughs> Finally, what do you really look forward to doing when this is all over that you cannot do now?
1: Ah, uh, really great travel.
0: Lori Garrett, thank you so much for sharing your time, expertise, and your inside story today. Thank you. Lori Garrett is a super busy person. She's being interviewed pretty much every day from somewhere in the world, so I was really grateful she could spend some time with us. She truly is a voice of informed reason during this pandemic, which she predicted, by the way, back in her 1994 book, The Coming Plague, Newly Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance. That plague is here, and so are we. And it's up to all of us to take it very seriously. I'm Scott Simmy. We'll catch you in a week with another edition of Inside Stories.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates or subsidiaries.